Perfect Podcast. Welcome to the Almost Perfect Podcast, a celebration of fuck-ups, failures, and falling flat on your face. This is a podcast that believes you can learn from experience, but that experience doesn't have to be your own. Ha, I'm Bob Perfect, and I'm a functional fuck-up. Let's learn from somebody else's mistakes. And today we are learning from Kanya Mshali. Now, Kanya is a writer and a critic who put out a book last year. It's called It's Not Inside, It's On Top. And it takes a look at the history of South African advertising over the last 30 to 40 years or so. It's a great alternative history uh, to South Africa and really digs deep into the culture around the adverts that we have seen. So we chat about that. We chat about the decline of the media industry. We chat about the chaos of social media and we chat about our love of wrestling. That's all coming up in just a little bit. But of course, I'm going to let you know that this podcast is brought to you by you, which means you can support it by going to patreon.com forward slash almost perfect, or you can go to almostperfect.co.za and buy yourself a mug or a t-shirt. So the podcast is also brought to you by King's House of Herbs over on Florida Road and the Print Room Durban. That out of the way, it's time to get into the Almost Perfect podcast with Kanya Umshali. So how are you living, Kanya? I'm doing okay. Um, today's obviously not the best of days. Um, we've had an untimely death, uh, RIP Ricky Rick. But other than that, I'm, I'm okay. How are you? Yeah, we are actually recording today on the Wednesday, uh, which everyone knows is the day where Ricky Rick passed away. And it has been a really sobering day in a lot of ways. And it's just brought a lot to light. But it's also, it's a continuation of something that's happened so much over the last few years. And it does feel like it's almost like an epidemic, you know? Mm, definitely. I mean, yeah, I think it's so incredibly sobering as you said and it's also just a reminder of the fact that life is so tenuous and it's so difficult to make sense of events like these and I oftentimes wonder whether it's down to us to try and make sense of them and we often project our own sort of challenges onto a public figure and it's like I don't know. It just brings up so many questions about like how you can commemorate somebody without personalizing their story to an extent where you erase them from it, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's the problem that we have with the social media age in a lot of ways is that it is a rush almost to like remind people, you know, like that you exist almost. And it's it's one of the darker aspects of when someone passes away is the just the I don't know like the chaos that comes with it you know just everyone charming in everyone talking about it and it just becoming this big public debate and you don't really get to sit with it and really I don't know reflect properly sometimes it does just feel like it's hot take city totally totally and I think it's because I guess people feel very uncomfortable just sitting, right? Like sitting somehow implies inaction. It somehow implies dispassion. Like we've seen it time and time again, you know, outside of death, if there's a protest or if there's something happening with regards to like social unrest, there's just this 
outpouring of rage if you don't respond immediately. Like we don't want to actually sit and reflect and think. There's something about that that feels kind of passive. And I suppose it relates to the point that you mentioned about like, I exist, I exist, look, I'm doing something. Like we're all just like screaming into the ether, you know, like begging for somebody to recognize us. Um, I hope I don't sound too existential, but like I've really been thinking about this a lot <laughs> um, with regards to like my own social media usage and like what's driving it. Like I claim I hate this website called Twitter and yet every single day I wake up and it's one of the first things I look at. It's, yeah. I relate to that so much. And it, like we were going to talk about Twitter, you know, regardless of today's, news um because you've recently taken a break from the platform after being pretty publicly lambasted by someone who wanted to get violent with you for something you said <laughs> so you've definitely <laughs> like seen you know the other side of you know this world to a degree i mean not even that i've seen the other side i've participated in the other side right like I don't want to speak for anybody, but sure, I feel have. like if you've been on this, right, like if you've been on this website long enough or if you've been on other social media platforms, like you've participated in that very reactionary, hot-headed, like reactive way of dealing with inane things that pop up on your timeline. And so that incident where I expressed, I think, a passing comment on some form of discourse I saw on my timeline, totally forgot about it, woke up the next morning and was threatened with real life <laughs> violence from a fellow adult. Like I was so flawed, Bob. Like I was just like, this cannot be life. Like, can you imagine, right? Because I assume you're an adult. <laughs> like scheduling a time to get into a fist fight with a fellow adult, given that you have rent to pay, bills to pay, like performance reviews if you're working in corporate, like you have all the responsibilities of an adult and now you're supposed to schedule in time to beat the shit out of somebody. It is like, I just couldn't deal with it. And I just realized, you know what? Like, I don't think I did anything wrong besides commenting on the discourse, which to some extent is kind of wrong because discourse is rubbish but um I feel like I don't know I just had to take a break but then again I didn't really take a break you know because I wanted to ask you this question um because we were chatting before and you said that you took like a three-year break from Twitter yeah. like did you ever well, come back to the account. website and visit <laughs> things you know what I mean like did you ever like visit you know or did you just abstain from Twitter totally yeah is that possible no, no, Jeez. no, no. So I was, no, no, I was just off of it from my personal accounts. I was using the almost perfect accounts. And so I was still like oh, right. okay. on Twitter. <laughs> like it wasn't like, I've only like, I've done month long breaks like over the years. And that's about as good as it gets where like I just stay off for a month. But other than that, I have, yeah, also very much been like sucked into that website and it does like bug me a lot that it's one of these places that like I just struggle to get off of but like at the same time there's reasons why you know we utilize it and it does have its uses but it is also just the toxic elements of it that are so hard to balance it's become this like thing where it's like 
I've spoken about it before on the podcast where it's like it's a lottery, you know, as to whether or not you're going to see something that adds value to your life or something that makes you pissed off. And that's kind of why we scroll. But at the same time, it's, you know, it is causing problems. Like it's definitely causing all of us to be probably a lot more anxious and to, well, not probably, definitely. (laughs) People who utilize social media are clearly more likely to, I don't know, just be more anxious, be more self-involved, be more aware of what other people think of them. And all of that, I don't think is necessarily healthy for, I don't know, just your long-term development. No, it absolutely isn't. And like, I wouldn't lie, there are benefits, like you said, about being very online. You know, you get to keep tabs on your favorite writers, your favorite artist to some extent if you are in your friends public facing right friends you know how about that stop thinking about networking Kanya but you know like you just get to be part of something and I I know during the pandemic like that was a value to me you know especially when I felt lonely especially when I missed the company of my in-person friends it was nice to log on to Twitter but then things get dark-sided because we are all anxious. We are all concerned about like saying the wrong thing. And people also don't necessarily engage in conversations to have a conversation. They engage in conversations to grandstand. You know, there's, I remember a time when I genuinely learned things on Twitter and I can't tell you when the last time you know, I actually really felt like I got something meaningful out of Twitter. I'm probably exaggerating, but like, I just feel like there's a lack of curiosity or at least a curiosity that I once experienced on this website is kind of gone. You know what I mean? And I feel like it's so easy to become a professional know-it-all and to engage in Mm -hmm. like the sort of showboating, you know, this intellectual showboating and to pretend like you know more than you do because you get the likes, because you get the attention, you know what I mean? To comment on things that you don't give a damn about because, you know, social capital. So yeah, it's a lot and um, we should all quit, but I'm not entirely sure why we don't. We're not going to. Yeah, never, never. I, I think actually, you know what. Um, yeah, I relate to a lot of that. Yeah, because I remember in my early days, like of being online, I used to rack up a lot of controversy in my very, very early career. And you? It's, no. <laughs> I mean, I don't try anymore. I don't like necessarily like you know. Back in the day, it was intentional. Nowadays, I just have opinions that people disagree with. Like I think. Like, and every now and again, I do, every now and again, I Hmm. might have a little bit of fun by (laughs) stoking the fires, but it's way rarer. Like it's way, like it used to be more for attention, whereas nowadays it's more just like life is absurd, you know, (laughs) like I fully embraced that when I was younger, just saying hectic shit. Yeah. Okay. But I do have a question about that because I feel like. As much as I'm giving you a bit of a hard time here, I very much enjoyed being a troll and was a troll at some point in my internet career. Like we all had phases like that on the internet, hopefully not as dark as like some other corners of the internet. But, you know, I also enjoyed the attention. I also enjoyed, you know, stoking controversy. But like, I wonder how much of that 
seeped into my online presentation now or even my presentation as a human being. Like, I am always curious about that because I too have moments where I'm like, I'm genuinely not trying to be controversial. Like, I'm not trying to be a problem. I'm just Mm -hmm. stating an opinion and it will be interpreted in a particular way. And obviously you can't control that and people do kind of look to disagree online. But I am curious, like, how much of your online persona as a young person do you feel has filtered into how you present yourself now? I think it's, I mean, it's kind of been consistent online, but in real life, I think there's quite a big, like, disconnect. A lot of people who know me in real life and a lot of people who, like, listen to the podcast and stuff like that get a very different opinion of me as to, like, people who only know me on Twitter. Like, if you only know me from, like, how I write on the internet, you will have a very different understanding of me as a person than if you actually listen to me talk. And that I find to be quite interesting. Like, I still, I don't know, like, I'm still trying to work it out, you know, like, what that is exactly. But there is, like, a thing when I'm writing that I'm a bit more blunt and to the point and aggressive. And also, like, when you're giving an opinion, when you are a writer, you and especially for me, like, as yeah. a comedian, I try and put it in a way that is going to have a reaction. Obviously, that's the point. You know, you want to make it land. Like whether you want it to be funny or you want it to be something that just hits, you know, that's your your Mm. word choice does matter there and that comes into the whole thing. So I do think like a lot of my online stuff has been consistently kind of trollish, even though like I don't necessarily feel like that person anymore, if that makes sense. No, it does. And like, it makes sense given the fact that you are a comedian and given the fact that you are a writer, like I feel, and I can only speak for myself, but like, I feel that when I do write, and especially when I was a much younger person and perhaps I didn't have like the skill set to pull something off, I would almost adopt a persona on the page and that would compensate for like some of the things that I wasn't able to do adequately right? Like, or it would kind of add a bit of zhuzh to a piece, you know, it would help in terms of like the humor, it would help in terms of like the energy, the tone of the piece. So I totally relate to that. Just this adoption of a persona to really help you as a writer. But I also, I have to say like some people, and and I emphasis on some people have told me that my online persona and my in-person persona are more or less the same, which I'm like, I'm not sure oh, if that's wow. like a good thing. Exactly. I'm not sure if it's a good thing or a bad thing. Actually, someone you interviewed in your podcast, Raf, said that to me once. Like I met him in person and he said, <laughs> it's so weird. Like your online persona is like coming out to play. And I'm like, yeah, because it's me. But it's interesting that, you know, there is that distinction. And sometimes you feel like the distinction is clear to some people, but other people will be like, hmm. Like right now, obviously I don't have a great sense of who you are. I can only judge from Twitter and the articles I've read of yours. But the kind of cheeky humor, the sort of wittiness, I get. You know, I get that. Fair. Like, I'm glad that that comes through, like, more than the just, like, misanthropic hatefulness that, like, some people (laughs) tend to get turned off by me. 
Like, some of my friends won't follow me on Twitter. Just Like, my legit friends. Like, we will hang the fuck out and they won't follow me on Twitter because they're just like, dude, I can't. Like, that's, you're, you're ridiculous. Like, it's too much. It's too negative all the time. Although that's not anymore. Like, I, I think. Like, yeah. I was back in the day. So, I, I feel like I've gotten a bit more puzzy in general, which is weird since life is getting worse. That's the thing. But, like, you're a writer. It would be strange for you to be enthusiastic because writing itself <laughs> or at least the state of writing generally is so dire and it's difficult to like not let that seep into how you see the world generally but you know it's interesting because I quite like a curmudgeon I quite like somebody who's a little negative like I don't know it's 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 very um <laughs> it's an outlook that I appreciate because I suppose it's one that I share but, you know, it's not like being a Debbie Downer, but just being a little caustic, being a little critical, being a little cynical. I don't know. Like, I I find that um, necessary. Well, that's when I read your work, okay? I actually see critical being one of the big words I would use. Like, when I read your stuff, you actually have such a good critical eye, especially with your book, but, like, with a couple of your articles as well. Like, I find you are able to give context to a lot of stuff and actually place it in its time and not just whitewash stuff in, in both senses of that word, I guess. But like, especially with your book, I found one of the cool things was that you were able to like look at stuff like the VW ad and place it with the strikes that were happening at the time and be able to go like, it's not all, you know, the rainbows that you see. Because when I started, when I, when I first heard about your book, I was a little like, I don't know if I'm going to dig this because I fucking hate advertising. And then by the end of it, I was like, damn, this is such <laughs> a good critical look at advertising over the last like 30, 40 years. Well, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. And thank you for buying the book. Yeah, look, um, it's so interesting because I don't like advertising either. I don't think anybody likes advertising, right? Like it's an <laughs> annoyance. And even during the so-called golden age of television advertising, we still found adverts annoying. However, I guess they were happening during a time where there were so many things going on, both politically, culturally, and socially. And so when I kind of thought about the idea for the book, I was like, I could do the bog standard thing, which would be to take a piece of culture or, you know, you know something that's happened in the arts, in music, or what have you, and just analyze it, contextualize it. But this felt like a great opportunity to kind of kill two birds with one stone, right? To like touch on politics, but also touch on culture, but also touch on social things. Because that's really like, those are my interests. Those are the things I care about. And oftentimes I feel like in contemporary journalism, especially in South Africa, there is this need for you to really zero in on a beat like if you're writing about politics you're writing about politics and that is that right yeah. like whereas I really appreciate criticism and writing that kind of touches on various things you know what I mean so I guess like that's what I was attempting to do and just generally speaking I love criticism I really do love criticism it is my favorite kind <laughs> of writing and it's not because I'm negative or I'm you know, a whore for chaos. It's more about the fact that like 
I love getting to sit down and hear or read rather how a writer approaches an intellectual problem, how they see the world, how they work through these different things that they're analyzing. I find that absolutely fascinating. And what I also find fascinating is that I can absolutely disagree with a critic's point of view and still find them engaging and still find them compelling. Like, I just remember, like, I guess the first critic whose work really resonated with me was Perry Ronger, like the movie critic who used to write oh, yes. um, pieces for. Exactly, exactly. Like, I remember my parents bought the newspapers a lot. And whenever they got the Sunday Times, the Sunday Times used to come with that like lifestyle magazine. And that lifestyle magazine also used to have um, an edition of Super Strikers, which was also goated. Mm -hmm. But basically, like Barry Ronger used to like tear apart Will Smith. And this was during like the early 2000s, mid 2000s, when like Will Smith was a God, you know, he was a God. He was the most bankable star in Hollywood. He was producing hits. However bad they were, we were dancing. He had the fresh pints of ballet. Wild, wild west. Yo, like, so, right. So, like, he would just tear apart Will Smith's performances in all these films. And my brother and I were like, this motherfucker. Like, we were so upset with him. And yet we still kept reading him. So I feel like that's why criticism just... It fascinates me and it interests me because it's like I can disagree fundamentally with the critic and still read them because the way they construct their argument, the way they sort of present their insights and their style and their tone is engaging. Yeah, I'm so with you there. And that's actually what I kind of enjoy about your writing. But I was wanting to get into the criticism stuff because I see you've done a lot of criticism when it comes to writing. Like uh, you've written for like the LA Book Review, you've written for the Johannesburg Book Review. And to me, like I used to like be a music critic. And these days I would say I just, you know, cover music more than criticize it because actually criticizing it just opens you up to like too much drama like it's mm, it's not mm, worth it to mm. put your actual opinion out there about stuff a lot of the time so have you ever dealt with those sorts of things oh boy oh boy have i um <laughs> oof it's it's a difficult one to talk about because i once reviewed a novel for a writer whom I was friendly with. We didn't necessarily have like a friendship, but we saw each other out on whatever scene you call like Melville and Bramfontein, you know? Um, <laughs> and so yeah, the, the Bram scene, I remember basically. going, right, like the Bram scene, right? But I don't want to be pretentious and be like, I saw him out on the scene, darling. You know, it's, <laughs> it's, a, bit, <laughs> it's a bit much, but I went to the book launch and I distinctly remember them asking me to review their novel and I said you know I'll think about it because I, I really felt like you know what I like to review novels or books where there's some degree of distance you know I don't want somebody to feel as though I'm going to give them a positive review because we have some sort of acquaintance or relationship yeah. so I kind of published a review of that particular book and 
that writer's response was so wild. It was unhinged. <laughs> and they attempted to give the impression that I had just attacked them, that this had just happened out of nowhere. Like they, I get, it was just the strangest experience I'd ever had because they almost like attempted to present me as a pit bull, as some negative nearly. And at the time I took offense to that because I didn't think that was what I did. I try, tried and still try to be thoughtful about the things I review. Um, I don't necessarily write as much as I, I used to, but like I felt like I was roped into this narrative, into this beef that wasn't an accurate portrayal of what I was doing. And then later on, that writer like attempted to invite me onto a podcast where we would hash out the issue. And again, that felt very tacky. It felt like this is not what I was attempting to do. So I totally agree with you. And I understand why you would sort of veer away from music criticism, which is a shame because from what I've read from you, there is care, you know, you may disagree or you may not necessarily like an album from a particular musician, but there's a degree of care. There's a degree of research. There's a degree of interest that regardless of whether this person is applauding your work or not, that for me is a testament of a journalist or a critic who's responsible and is doing their job. So I think the lesson from that, and I actually had a bunch of like people in the industry approach me and say, look, you know, Kanya, if I were to give you a piece of advice, don't review South African literature, stay away from it, stick to international stuff because South African, yeah, like South African, you know, the literary scene is really small and, you know, you don't want to step on people's toes. And I thought to myself, hello, like the stakes are so flipping low in like South African media and publishing. It's not like any of us are going to sign like a multi-million rand book deal. Those don't exist here. So the fact that like you have to tiptoe and sort of be fake, it seems, when the stakes are so low, the poor is so pay, it just didn't seem worth it. So I think after that incident, I was kind of, I don't know, I was a little just weary of literary criticism in South Africa. But beyond that, I've written critical reviews and no one's really given me crap for it. But that particular incident really stuck out to me as, um, yeah, it was it was an interesting one to navigate. Yeah, I think there's a level to the industry that understands criticism and appreciates it and you know, values that you are taking time to engage with the art, whether or not you like it. You know, I know a few artists who are like that and I've written stuff about them that, you know, is being negative and we're still cool as fuck. And there's been other mm. people who I was cool with and then I wrote something that was honest and they now hate me for a decade. So... It's interesting oh, sometimes how certain, I mean, well, the funniest thing is the people who, you know, are cool about it are actually successful musicians now, literally, and right. the ones who still hate me are, you know, doing other things. So it does speak to understanding how the industry works, you know, understanding how literally any, like, because also what I like understood when I used to run a blog and that was that the people, like, if I write something negative about a band, 
their fans are then going to defend them. And, mm. you know, that's going to drive engagement and that is then going to create conversation. And whilst I might disagree, mm. it has now emboldened your fans, which we've seen lately a lot on the internet. It's like with Mac G and with Joe Rogan and with various people, totally. like negative stuff actually works in terms of engagements for everyone. And it's a problem that we actually have with modern media. So I find it interesting that like both of us have kind of, you know, at a time where it's most profitable to be, you know, rabble rousers kind of veer away from it. What actually made you, yeah, decide to, because you could have gotten into it, you know, you could have like gone, yeah, what is it? So like steer into the skid basically and actually being the person mm. who was like, you know what, I'm going to cause this trouble here in South Africa and actually review stuff honestly. But, you know, instead it's like, mm. well, it's obviously not worth that trouble. So, yeah, what were the conversations you were having with yourself? Mm. I guess from my perspective, I think just from what I've observed, I've seen a lot of writers present themselves as saviors of criticism, right? Um, and sometimes <laughs> it's not necessarily them doing that. Right, like it's not necessarily them doing that. It's other people doing that for them. You know, it's happened quite a lot where somebody will write a review and they'll be christened, you know, the rabble rouser of the industry, the person who's speaking, you know, truth to power. And that's all good and well, but it's very difficult to divorce yourself from that particular image. And that was something I was very conscious yeah. of as a writer. I didn't want to pigeonhole myself. I didn't want to present myself as this sort of um, hatchet job critic. There's nothing wrong with a good hatchet job. I love a good hatchet job, <laughs> but I would like to be doing something a little more thoughtful than that. No, truly. Like, I love a good hatchet job. Like, a great takedown. I'm Come with on, you. let's be honest. Exactly, right? But, like, you don't want to pigeonhole yourself. You don't want to be one thing for the rest of your career. And, you know, truth be told, Bob, like, as a woman writer, there's also some steep consequences to that too. Sure. Where I guess male writers are allowed to grow up, right? Like they're allowed to sort of mature. They're allowed to be young, brash, and obnoxious. Whereas if you're a woman writer who does 100%. that, it's difficult to, to break out of that mold. So I was very conscious of that, which is why when that particular writer invited me to go onto the podcast, I said, no, thank you, because I know exactly how this is going to go down. And I know exactly what you want from me. And I guess to kind of end all of this, or like to end this particular point, because I could go on. Um, <laughs> I also just, I'm terrible at the public facing stuff. I really am. And I'm not saying this to be cute or anything, but I genuinely don't know how to do the whole marketing end of being a writer. Like I find it very difficult because my natural personality, I mean, I don't necessarily think I'm particularly likable. You know, I don't have that going for me, to be perfectly honest. So <laughs> I have to think about like, no, it's it's facts. Oh, I it's, the so facts. Hard. it's the facts. Like I'm not a likable person. It's just, you know, some people have it, some people don't. And so I have to be very careful and deliberate about how I sort of, I guess like it, it's like I'm, I'm just so bad at the marketing stuff because I just 
I just suck at it. <laughs> I really do. For me, it's like, I just don't want to do it. You know, like, I just hate having yeah, to put on that part of me. It's, it's just fake and it sucks, like, to have to, like, yeah, just try. And also, it's the thing that I hate. It's like, it's not the thing that I want to be doing. I want to do the thing. Like, why mm. do I have to now spend all this time, especially in the modern era where, like, it's wonderful that we have these tools that allow us to promote ourselves, you know, for free. Like, well, I mean, to a degree, obviously mm. we're the products, blah, blah, blah. But like, it's at the same time, you are now your own A&R, you're your own publisher, you're your own everything Whoa. the whole time. And everyone is doing it. And we're all competing at the exact same time, all trying to get the same <laughs> fucking skills out of this tiny little pond. It's crazy. But you seem to have navigated it pretty well because, I mean, you've written for a million different places and you do have a publishing deal. So let's start at the publishing deal and work the way back. How did you pitch this book? Who did you pitch it to? And what was the leverage that you had basically going into it that they were like, cool, let's do this? Wow. Like, <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, It's so funny how... I guess because right now I feel like I'm in my flop era, like I haven't necessarily written that much. So it's quite <laughs> interesting to hear somebody say, you've written so much. And I'm like, wait, really? But I guess when I was a much, much younger writer, I was able to like motivate myself through fear. You know, I was so, I'd been retrenched from a media job. And my fear was that if I didn't have this media job, putting a fire up my ass, I'd never write again. So I went into like, beast mode where I was just pitching relentlessly and I kind of figured and having gone to like NYU for my master's I was able to sort of pitch to international publications and figure out like how to write for them or how to kind of present South African sort of stories to them yeah. Um, and I just did that relentlessly, relentlessly. And I was also on Twitter. And really, what I suppose launched my Twitter account, or the current one that I have now, was me kind of shitting on somebody. <laughs> I just shat on somebody. And I got a bunch of followers. And I just kept being, yeah, I was just being the ultimate thinkfluencer. And eventually, I got followed by... Mbali Sikagana, who is a commissioning editor at NB Publishers. And I think towards the end of 2019, she approached me and said, hey, like, would you like to write a book? I saw you published a piece of criticism on an essay collection. And I was like, oh, fuck. I just hadn't, you know, I just hadn't. Obviously, if you're a writer, you kind of, well, I can't speak for everybody, but you you'd hope that you'd want to write a book, right? But you're never really ready for it. So I was like, sure. uh, I guess I've always wanted to write a book about advertising. And I just kind of really exchanged um, a conversation. We had a conversation um, via DM and then I wrote her a proposal. I wrote her a sample. And then that's pretty much how the book deal came about. And it was just... You know, I think a big motivator for why I did it, and I think it kind of ties into some of the things we've just chatted about, was feeling like, you know, the kind of writing that I want to do, 
the sort of long form pieces that are sprawling, that touch on different things that are not just, you know, cultural criticism, but a little bit of political commentary. And perhaps maybe we have a little bit of television criticism going on there. Those sort of pieces, there's no place for them anymore. You know, we don't have publications that accommodate that kind of writing, even short form music criticism or cultural criticism, it's very difficult to find a place to place them. Obviously, there's still, you know, the culture review, there's New Frame, there's the Mail and Guardian, but even then their arts and culture section is dwindling. You know, you still have a bunch of publications, but it's, they're not as, it's very difficult to find them. And so I kind of felt like the book was an opportunity for me to do the kind of writing that I just don't see enough opportunities to do in South Africa. You know, like it was an opportunity for me to do a lot of reporting because I felt like even if I wanted to do a piece of reporting, it was difficult to get it published because people want the easy thing. They want you to do the easy thing so they don't have to pay you that much. Yeah. You know, they want you to do the op-ed. They want you to do, you know, I don't necessarily want to call it easy writing because no writing is easy, but they want you to do writing that doesn't really require that much labor. And so I just felt like the book The stuff you can do in an afternoon, basically. Exactly, exactly. I just felt like the book was an opportunity for me to really do the kind of writing that I had grown up reading and loving and wishing I could do, but given the state of the industry, felt, you know, impossible to do. Yeah, I fully (laughs) relate to that feeling because there are so few places like I, I had to like my style developed towards what like worked for different editors and different mm. websites and stuff but like it wasn't necessarily for a while like the stuff that I necessarily wanted to write or the way I wanted to write but at the same time it's so difficult to find readers for that kind of mm. writing almost because media has changed so much you know yeah. stuff has become way more visual yeah no I mean I was gonna ask you like this this question's been sitting on my spirit but like I mean it kind of feels like you know you mentioned the fact that like you had to sort of change your writing style or kind of write pieces that would satisfy the needs of a publication or an editor which is all good and well right but like I suppose it's like it feels as though you're accepting failure to some extent or like you're making peace with the fact that sure. this thing that you thought you were going to do, you were, you never did. And like to your point of people not necessarily being receptive to that kind of writing, I also feel I don't want to make peace with that. I don't want to come to terms with that. I still want to believe that there are people who will sit down and read a 5,000 or 10,000 or 15,000 piece. Like, but they're not, you know, mm-hmm. um, they're not. Like these social media platforms have robbed us of the attention span. But I mean, I also want to talk to you about like cultivating an audience or cultivating like a group of people who take interest in your art. You know, that's so hard but it's something you have to yeah. do. And it's like, how do you navigate that? Like knowing that you don't want to do that work, but you have to do that work because the infrastructure for, you know, people who are usually responsible for those things doesn't really exist anymore. Like, how do you 
deal with that? I mean, to be honest with you, I just haven't been great with it. Like, I've got a small little audience that I love to death. And, you know, like, it's grown and it's it's ebbed and flowed over the years, to be honest with you, depending on where I'm at. You know, when I was a little more of a, like, yeah, rabble rouser, I probably had a lot more people following me. But I don't, I'm like, I'm so stoked those people aren't still with me because seeing how they've carried on with their lives... <laughs> It's then they're not people like you know that I dig, so I'm glad we we made that little branch off in that. But mm. to be honest with you, it is something that I struggle with, you know, knowing that like if I want to have a long term career, I need to develop an audience, but at the same time, you don't necessarily want to always live your life in front of people, and yeah. it's trying to cultivate that whole thing of creating art, creating, you know, media that I want to last and want to carry on beyond, you know, even, you know, whatever this time frame is. And that's like the mm. main thing for me more than having an audience. But like when it comes to comedy and stuff, I know that like if I want to be like an actual successful stand-up comedian, I need to develop an audience and I need to figure out how to fucking do that be on Twitter because that is clearly not the space where I'm going to grow like an audience. Mm. But I mean, it's like you, you are in such public facing like art forms, right? Like comedy, particularly stand-up comedy. Like it's yeah. such a public facing art form. And right now there seems to be questions around like whether that particular art form has reached its point of relevance and I think those conversations mm -hmm. are specifically American but there are conversations around like is stand-up comedy you know does it have a place right now um and it's so difficult I imagine it's so difficult to navigate I mean this this seems kind of I don't know like I feel the podcast space is interesting because you can find an audience and I guess the guests that you have had on your podcast are involved in various forms of arts and culture that you can, by virtue of having them on your podcast, get an audience that way. But man, stand up. I mean, yeah. is the YouTube profitable? Is like, in, do you go the Instagram route? Like, how do you even tackle that beast? Because are you a front facing comedian? Is that something that you would, you know, venture into? Because that seems lucrative on TikTok. But then again, it's like a lot of those people are not funny at all. Like, how do you even... Yeah, can I tell you what the plan is? Go ahead. In, in my mind, the idea is soonish I will start getting back on stage and just, mm -hmm. you know, not even fucking worry at all about the internet and just try to get really good mm -hmm. at stand-up comedy. And hopefully, that works. Like, that's it. That's my plan, is right. just to try and put my all into it and just, you know, write jokes perform as much as possible, try and travel where I can and just, yeah, let the world decide. But I am so tired of all the other shit, you know, the content shit, the fucking, mm. you know, having mm. to develop this for YouTube or fucking TikTok and this and that. And not even just in terms of profitability, but just in terms of like time spent, you know, I would honestly rather write a script for something, you know, like, and 
as yeah. hard as those are to get, you know, like made in that. At the same time, there is funding and stuff like that. And to me, maybe the real world is actually how to do things. Maybe we've been sold a lie when it comes to this online stuff because you've got a fucking book, mm. like a real world fucking book. Like that's having an impact. And like, you know, that's not just the short form content. You know, like you said, you took time to really fucking dig deep into this thing like you interviewed a ton of different people how long did this actually take to make gosh it's so interesting being sorry sidebar but it's so interesting being interviewed by a writer because I'm like no I have a question to ask you and it's like oh gosh I'm being interviewed sorry it's a bit of a trip um, <laughs> yeah I, I have to keep turning it around such a trip. Yeah, because I'm just like, I just feel like I'm actually taking over your podcast. This is ridiculous. I'm sorry. So, you know what? Like, I wish I had more time to do this book. And I have to say, like, I did a very poor job of selling this book because I was so disappointed that it didn't look like the book I had envisioned. Bob, let me tell you, I had this perception of me being there, you know, underground reporter you know notepad even though barely any reporters <laughs> use notepads anymore you know like recorder no one uses a recorder yeah, like, just Kanye was gonna use it. exactly like exactly like I had this vision of myself like kind of what you mentioned was you know stand up going on the road that's how people did things traditionally and wanting to reacquaint yourself with that but like I had this vision of myself doing the reporting on the ground, seeing people, getting to describe the settings, you know, like I had this, you know, vision of going, you know, to SAB Miller, the distillery, and talking to whomever I could talk to there and taking notes and just describing all these things. And then the pandemic hit and everything had to be conducted over Zoom and Teams. And I cannot tell you how long it took for me to come to terms with that. I had to cut down on the chapters I wanted to explore because I knew I wouldn't have the time. And mind you, I have a nine to five. So I was writing this book at night mostly. I wasn't sleeping. I was subsisting off coffee. Okay, I had no idea. Written. Just hold on one second. Yeah, I had no idea you had a nine to five considering how much you tweet. Oh my God, that is so rude and so flippant true. You know, that is, it's rude, but it's true. I, I tweet so much, <laughs> dude. I tweet so much. It's not good. Wow. Um, no, but yeah, I thought you were fully it's living crazy. the freelance life. But cool. Absolutely not. Are you kidding me? The freelance life. Fuck that. Like I have to, you know, I, I, I listen, hey, struggling artist. I just, it's, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I, can't, I don't have the guts. <laughs> let me put it that way. But like, yeah. So I just, I had to find a way to write this book be on Twitter, as you just cheekily mentioned, and, you know, do my nine to five and make sure that I did as much research as possible. So really, like, I had to come to terms with the fact that I was not going to write the book that I had envisioned. And I kept going back to my commissioning editor to say, like, oh my goodness, I can't do this. I can't do that. And, you know, you can imagine, like, you're trying to get in touch with sources so difficult, so difficult. Like, I don't think people who are outside of journalism understand that 
it is a nightmare trying to get a hold of people, trying to get people to agree to an interview. Mm-hmm. They are, you have to get past oh, that barrier of hostility. You have to, you know, you know this. You have to put them at ease. You have to, you know, sometimes, and I hate this. I hate this so much, Bob. Like, I hate it when somebody's like, Give me the list of questions you intend to ask. To ask. I'm like, ah, no, you are not getting a list of preset yep. questions. No, like that is not, it's not journalism. That is PR. That is PR, you know? And that was a nightmare. You know, it was a nightmare. And, you know, it it, it was tough. And with indie publishers, they essentially, originally they wanted to give me nine months to do this book. And I said, fuck no, you're giving me 11. So... I had to do all of this in 11 months, in the middle of a pandemic, being housebound, level five, certain libraries were closed. So I couldn't necessarily get resources. I had to call publishers to get a hold of books. Um, I was also fact checking everything as I went because, you know, I, there's nothing worse than getting a correction. There's nothing worse than like not getting something right like my lord like I get things wrong on Twitter that's fine but not in a book not in a book you know so I was just like panicking 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 in a total state of panic but you know I have to say like there were moments where it felt exhilarating and the best for me like the best the best parts of the book really were the reporting parts. Like I loved reporting. I never thought I was a good reporter. I never thought that I would ever like it, but that book made me fall in love with reporting because I mean, my favorite thing was, listen, I've only got 30 minutes. Kanya, I've only got 30 minutes. That's all I have. And then I'm talking to that motherfucker for three hours. It's like, Oh, you only had 30 minutes. Hmm. Hmm. Like I love that because it made me feel like, you know what? I'm doing my job. I'm doing my job. And like when somebody, you know, is able to sort of, when you're able to get them to talk about things they haven't really talked about, like I felt that, especially in my conversation with Joao Kayembe um, Hagen, there was, yeah, like there's a chapter in the book where I wrote an essay about the Sprite Zero ad she did. And she brought up things that I had been curious about, but I wasn't necessarily sure I was going to get it out of her. And it happened to come out of her. And I was like, yes. And even though the transcribing was a nightmare, like transcribing, oh my God, I hate it. Like, I really hate transcribing. Wow. But like, it was just so gratifying. You know, it sucks. And even like the transcription tools, it's like you use them, but it's it's like not the same sitting down, hearing things, hearing yourself is a nightmare. Like, even though I'm extremely <laughs> egotistical, I hate hearing my voice. But yeah, it was, it was, it was an interesting time. Let me put it that way. Yeah, I was like, I thought it was a strong closer. Also, I thought the opener was also strong. And just in general, like you really wove like, a great like alternative history of South Africa over the last like while and like really captured the essence of what was going on in the country whilst analyzing these adverts that we all recognize. <laughs> like I didn't even realize, like I didn't even remember some of them until you brought them up in the book. And then I was like, oh yes, that was a thing like that we all like went through. And it's also, it's kind of weird that nowadays you don't necessarily have those shared cultural experiences. Mm. One of the things that really frustrated me, like when I had to do press for the book was the last question without fail was like, you know, there's no longer adverts like these. 
what's going on? Why aren't adverts as good as they used to be? I'm like, granted, a lot of adverts are sucky. Let's be honest, they're trash. But also, we don't watch as much television, or at least the audiences that those particular ads are taught, like, let me rephrase this because I'm being incoherent. But the landscape has changed, you know, like there's so many other things you can do besides watching television. Even when you are watching television, you're most likely on your phone. You know what I mean? So like things have changed and advertising has had to adapt to those changes. So while I do believe that perhaps creatively things are not where they used to be or there does seem to be this real... I don't know. Adverts these days are so incomprehensible. It's like WWE, you know, it's like nothing makes sense. These adverts (laughs) do not make sense. You know what I mean? Like, it's just like, what the hell is this? But I I, I have to agree. Like we don't have those shared experiences and I'm not even sure whether we have had those shared experiences. And I don't know if I did a good enough job of bringing that up in the book. You know, I feel like had I had time and I guess every single writer can say this about a piece they've done, right? Like, if I only had the time. But I truly wish I had kind of doubted myself a bit more and kind of, like, been critical of the conclusions that I've reached in the book because I don't know if we all had these shared cultural experiences as much as we like to think we did, you know? Like, there's always a way to sort of poke holes in that. Sure, although I kind of felt like you did give it a different perspective to like what I would have, what I did experience growing up. Well, yeah, you did shine a light on it that was different to what I probably originally got out of those adverts, you know, like what it was portraying. And then you kind of lifted the veil on the fact that not everyone would have seen the adverts the exact same way. And people would have related to different characters for different reasons, considering the time frame, you know? Yeah, like I really felt that with the VW chapter, and that was arguably like my favorite chapter to write because when I saw this advert, I thought to myself, oh, okay, well, this seems to be relatively progressive. It came out in 1988, and yet you have these rainbow nation themes. And as much as we now know that that particular narrative is flawed and fraudulent like for it to come out at a time when there was so much turbulence in the country you know like you could say wow this is progressive to some extent however you look at what was happening on the ground at the VW factory you know it was entirely different they were leading the charge in terms of this renaissance of the labor unions in South Africa so it was interesting to sort of look at that advert, interpret it as being progressive, and then on the other hand, see how it was attempting to undermine the labor efforts on the ground, and then also kind of looking at what happened decades later where the very same labor leaders or the very same ANC who benefited and profited off the efforts of the labor movement returned to that VW factory in the Eastern Cape and kind of, you know, I don't know, like, I think I described it in like one of the closing paragraphs where there was this ribbon cutting ceremony and it felt like, oh, look, you know, the old labor leaders and the old bosses are coming together. And it just felt like this neoliberal horror show, you know. So (laughs) I I don't know. I, I really enjoy writing things like that where you're just consistently poking holes at your own perception of things like it's it's a bit of a mind fuck, but it's the best kind of mind fuck, you know. Yeah, definitely. I guess I'm going to bring up 
wrestling then because that like in terms of poking holes in like <laughs> the things you like uh because yeah I was, I was originally gonna go with the university of new york stuff but like yeah let's get into wrestling because you are one of the most public facing wrestling fans in south africa and like <laughs> i you and i might disagree on what we think is good when it comes to wrestling but it is so fucking Definitely. rad to see someone else like share that like passion and not not be like shy about it no, definitely. I mean, I think I, I can't remember how I started following you. I think it might have been through Raf. But when I saw you tweeting, I think you tweeted something about CM Punk, and I was like, "Let's go!" You know. And like in the the next, like in the like over the last couple <laughs> of months, I found more wrestling fans in South Africa who are far more enthusiastic than I am. Like, and I don't know if you've tapped into like the WWE sort of standard in South Africa. It is fucking hectic. Like there are so many Sasha Banks fans as they should be, but it's quite <laughs> yeah. hectic, but it was pretty interesting to find a fellow wrestling fan. And I have to say, we do have disagreements. I know you are an AEW enthusiast. I did read that puff piece you wrote about AEW, you know. <laughs> Total I piece. Like, the criticism will come in a couple of years. Yeah, I mean, worry. it was a little bit. <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, and I, what I did like about that piece is that you described wrestling as postmodern storytelling. And I, that is arguably the best descriptor of professional wrestling and really encapsulates why I love professional wrestling. Like, I think... It's nice to meet someone who understands, like, look, we know this is fake. Like, to even bring that up yeah. in conversation is really, like, yeah. it's silly and it's inane. And Thank I don't you. need to justify why I like this Thank thing. You. Exactly. I'm not justifying anything, even though I'm currently doing that right now to an extent. But I guess, like, you know, what's there not to like, right? Like, I'm somebody who likes sport. I like fashion. I like reality television. I like things that are kind of camp and over the top. I like storytelling and wrestling encapsulates all of that. What's there not to like? It is fantastic. And like, as much as I'm kind of happy to be a wrestling fan at this time, because I haven't necessarily been on board with everything that AEW has done, but I do have to say that they have introduced excitement into the world of professional wrestling you know they've yeah i mean tony khan nah, i have my thoughts <laughs> but you know they've made things exciting again they really have like you know and just the big stars they've been able to pull in in the last couple of months i mean come on like that's what it's all about like looking forward to things and the crowds listen it is so Watching Rampage, watching Dynamite, it's like you hear crowds that are involved. When last? When last? Like you watch WWE and you don't hear a crowd that gives a shit. Maybe at Madison Square Garden, maybe, you know, certain crowds are involved, but like you hear the same chants or like it's just so muted. And then you watch Flippin' Rampage and you're like, damn, like these people give a shit as they should. Yeah, no, it's, like, it's what I love about, like, AEW is you'll have people, like, absolutely, like, losing their shit to a squash match. 
Like it is just a different like vibe entirely. But yeah, I'm with you. Like I think it has changed a lot. And I'm with you also on the criticisms when it comes to Tony Khan because like, mm. you know, in the beginning I was like, oh, this guy seems pretty rad. And a part of me is like, yeah, he's a fucking billionaire's son. Like he's a businessman. Yeah. Like he's also a businessman yeah. that's being played by like wrestlers because you know wrestlers are carnies who are just trying to get the most money, and he's got like the big checkbook, exactly. and so does Vince McMahon. And now they are both like like this is the best time if you are a wrestler since you know WCW and WWF existed at the same time. Like everyone's going to get paid more. Everything's just going to get better for everyone. And it's great for fans because even now, like you see the Cody Rhodes like story, whatever happens with that, it's Ooh. created so much buzz. You know, you and I have spoken about this on Twitter. Like, what's going on? That's, you know, I don't think people understand how desperately wrestling fans want to be deceived like we want this to be a work we want this to be something like please deceive me please pull wool over our eyes please fool us like what's going on is cody really leaving aew okay we're recording again cool yeah as you were saying what were you saying yeah it's good to have aew there but i guess my criticism not just of AEW, but of AEW fans, and to a large extent, wrestling media, I feel like people were too excited to have competition on the scene. And I totally get that. And what it did was make people less critical of Tony Khan. And I think people assumed, well, he's a fan. So he has, sure. you know, our best interests at heart. And while, you know, it's good to play to fan reaction and what have you, especially if you're in the ring, of course, it's like, just because you're a fan doesn't mean that you know how to book a show. Like, you know what I mean? Like, you don't know how to book a show. And there were certain decisions made. For example, I feel like this idea of long-term storytelling, AEW needs to really just go back to the drawing board because sometimes it's like, you should have disbanded certain states, like stables. You know what I mean? Like, there's just like okay. okay. No, I need an example here because, like, they're I, in a circle. Who? I'm sorry. Like, they should have been disbanded. Oh, but that's happening, no, and that's yes, I'm but with it you. took them so long to get there. Even Jericho said, "Look." I wanted to disband the inner yeah, circle. Yeah, okay, like, I agree. Okay, I can agree with you there. Exactly. So I'm just saying, like. And I think this is the problem with AEW is that I don't, I guess it's changed in the last couple of months, but there was a time where I felt like you are too reactive. You are reacting to everything that WWE has done. So WWE is notorious for breaking up stables like the Hurt Business. I'm still not okay with that. That was a fucked up decision. Okay. Not okay with it. But they have a tendency to break up factions, to introduce wacky shit into storylines that doesn't make sense and just fucks with the flow of things and so AEW's like okay we'll do long-term storytelling okay we'll have a function that it's like gosh the inner circle i was like begging these motherfuckers <laughs> to break up i was like please someone like please where's the tension come on i'm bored of this crap and i do i have to say i'm i was so happy when punk came on the scene i was happy when Danielson came on the scene, because it meant that people like Chris Jericho, who was indulged, let's be honest, he was indulged. Oh, 100%. Too much. Exactly. 
too much, far too much. They had to take it, take a step back. And I think, again, we don't know whether this thing with Cody is a work. I'm starting to think that it isn't, which makes me question <laughs> Cody's judgment as a wrestler. It really does. Like, I'm sorry, but what what did you expect? What what the hell did you expect? You're inviting some of the most legendary wrestlers and you thought you were going to be the man still. Come on. And even then, why aren't you turning heel? Why aren't you turning heel? Like, why? Do you know what I mean? Like, that was nonsensical. That was nonsensical. I really, that man's obsession with being a face is like, it deserves like some psychological study because I don't get it. I really don't get it. Like, he's not... I don't know if it's true, though. Like, I don't know if that's true, that he's like... Because we hear reports of this and that. No, because, like, I thought what was happening was, like, a long-term... You know, like, this was like a comic book supervillain fucking arc that was being sold on TV. That's what I was watching. Yeah, so, like, I assume, like, that was the plan... Until things kind of fucked out with between him and Tony. Like, if that's what happened. Or, like, I don't know what went on there. But, like, I do think the heel turn was inevitable. And if it wasn't, then holy shit, he is delusional. Like, because it would have been the greatest thing. And it's what it seemed like was happening. But if he does go to WWE, everyone's saying he'll come in as a face. But to me, it makes sense that he would just be a heel and... Yeah, he would be the invader. <laughs> like, exactly. Yeah, he it's all. But that's he the thing. He should not. No, he shouldn't. But at the same time, in terms of story, in terms of career legacy, in terms <sighs> of career generating headlines, in terms of making money, in terms of all of that shit, making history, it makes sense. If you're thinking about this as a wrestler almost, in terms of what do they put on my Wikipedia page? Maybe this is the time you leave AEW and go back to WWE because it's this massive fucking deal. Whatever happens after that, you know, you got to live with. But maybe that's what he's thinking. I don't know. I genuinely, I like, it's a very interesting decision to make. Honestly, I think he's played this really poorly. I really do. I think he's played this really, really, really badly. He had the opportunity to be a monster heel at AEW. Can you imagine? Like, he could have been resentful. He could have been bitter. Like you said, the whole superhero arc. Like, he was, you know, I was getting, you know, John Cena. John Cena was never a heel. But you know the time of people fucking hated John Cena's guts. That's what I was getting. He was super Hollywood. He had a reality TV show for fuck's sakes. And let me tell you something, Bob. I love reality TV. Not ironically, I fucking love the shit. Like, I genuinely like it. Genuinely like it. And not even I could get through that crap. He is so delusional. His Brandy Rhodes. Oh, my Lord, guys. Like, I'm sorry. I'm I'm. Um, the fact that she wanted to be top of the women's division at AEW and had the audacity to say, oh, I'm doing this for my daughter. You can't wrestle. You can't wrestle. You can't wrestle for bread. You're not even good on the mic. Her promos. Oh, my goodness. It was a cringe <laughs> fest. And it's like, this is why I question Cody. I'm like, I mean, that reality show, right? 
the way he talked about promos, it was so Hollywood. That's why I thought, gee, man, Cody has this heel turn cooking. I was excited because I was he like, is Hollywood. this is so shit. He is Hollywood, but I thought he had the self-awareness to sort of go, let me use this to my advantage, but he clearly doesn't. And I really do feel, again, I'm projecting, well, maybe as we all do, I really do feel that he wants to be a face like his father. And to, you can't, the American dream was the ultimate face, you know, the ultimate face. He yeah. had that thing, that charisma, that down-to-earthness that Cody just doesn't have. Cody doesn't even look like somebody. Cody looks like a villain. He legit looks like a villain. He's pale as shit. <laughs> exactly. His eyes are like pissing blue. He has peroxide blonde hair. He looks like somebody who wants to like take over the world and, you know, cause shit. So I'm just like, dude, you are the perfect heel. You're the perfect heel. He fucked this because, fine, he'll have a great moment at WWE. Oh, look at me. I'm the invader. But what next? He'll become a jobber. You know what I mean? He'll become a jobber. So I reckon he yeah. goes somewhere else. I truly do. Go somewhere else or try and find your way back I mean, to AEW. I can, I can imagine him buying ROH if he has that much money. Uh, I don't think he has the money for that. And I think their fandom wouldn't take well to that because he will use that promotion I to mean, promote he was himself. pretty great in and ROH his non I don't know that was a great I run just... like that Bullet Club run was actually enjoyable that's where I started to like get into them and like I know you hate the Young Bucks and stuff mm. like that but like that was Oof. where like all of those guys like really like started to get on my radar what do you have against the young bucks? That's what I don't understand. Oh, come on, man! It's, they it's they gymnastics. are so good at it's, their characters. Oh yeah, characters. But it makes like I don't mind. I don't mind people annoying me. Okay, I don't mind being annoyed. I really don't. But it's like there's. It's just so grating, and the wrestling itself, man. Come on, like <laughs> try and make it seem a bit spontaneous. Try and make it seem a little bit like. Oh come! But like. Oh, come on, Bob, come on. Like, really, it's impressive, like, after how many I think fucking, they do a like, lot of creative after shit. how many, co- uh, but Whoa, after how many watch, coordinated Actually moves. watch their matches, though, like, yeah, I sure, have watched but, like, them. actually Dude, watch, I have watched their the, matches, the and I'm like, Bros, this is not wrestling. The Lucha Bros it's cage not, match? It's a, yeah, yeah, it's a different. the Lucha Bros are in it, different. dude. Come on. <laughs> It's not different. But, like, it's, so it's that's not the thing. That's like, the thing. It is more choreographed. Like, I... It is... Vi- Listen, if you're into that thing, fine. It's okay. I get it, right? But, like, let's not... If you're going to come after WWE superstars who are, like, high spot, high spot, high spot, high spot, high spot, <laughs> false footage, false footage, false footage, you've got to also look at the bucks and go... Sometimes it does look a bit too, you know, it's giving, it, it feels like I'm watching, like, I don't know, Save the Last Dance. It feels like I'm watching some weird, like, Channing Tatum <laughs> fucking pop film from the 2000s. I'm sorry, it does. It's just too cargrabbed. Like, oh, I can't even pronounce the word, but it's just too, re- it's just too rehearsed, you know? I can see with some teams that being, an issue but like i like for me personally like i'm so tired of like tope suicidas 
Like we never need to see them again. And like I think matches like CM mm. Punk versus MJF, like the last one, was like classic fucking wrestling. And I love that. Fantastic. Like I absolutely fucking love that shit. But I'm also like I enjoy watching, you know, Darby Allen versus Sammy Guevara because I know they're just gonna do crazy fucking shit. Like it's just like a part of me will always be like, you know, a Hardy Boys mark, you know, an Edge and Christian versus Dudley Boys versus Hardy Boys and ladder match in New York, like TLC fucking shit. Like that will always be like a part of what I love about wrestling is just people yeah. doing crazy stunts. No, and look, like, I'm there with you. You know what I mean? Like, there is a place for that kind of wrestling. You know what I mean? I love it. I love a stunt. I love Darby Allen. I really do. Like, I know people have criticized him. And usually, you know, to be fair, the criticism of Darby Allen is more about, dude, you need to be aware of the fact that you have a body and you have to take care of it. Like, I I don't think anybody would doubt his talent. And CM Punk versus MJF, like, do you understand how excited I was when that feud started to sort of, percolate like ho ho CM Punk on the stick MJF on the stick and look I'm not the greatest fan of both of them as wrestlers you know I don't think they're terrible I don't think they're boring but like there are people I like better that I would prefer to watch wrestle but the feud itself was fantastic and MJF is someone I have all the time for all the time for yeah that is a heel that is a born heel like i just love him on the stick i love his persona i love the fact that he stays in character kayfabe like i love that about him i really do i mean some of the promos or at least the interview segments i found them a bit too rehearsed and i think that just applies to most like professional wrestlers like there's a degree of like I can see that you rehearse this in front of your mirror. Fine, I can pardon that because he's great <laughs> otherwise. But I just, I have all the time for MJF. And Eddie fucking Kingston. Ho! Listen, like, oh my God. Like, that, that feud with Punk, that was fantastic. I loved it. And the articles that came, I mean... I really, you see, that's where I was like, I would never get this from WWE. I wouldn't get someone like Eddie Kingston in WWE. And that's fine. But no. that's why I will tune into AEW. You know what I mean? No, I'm with you. Like, for me, AEW is like the, the it's the love child of everything. Like when it comes to wrestling, it's ECW, it's WCW, it's mm. modern indies, you know, it's uh, like it's New Japan and it's all these different, mm. it's the modern, like, you know, take on what wrestling should be. And that's why, like, I think like some of the stuff that you don't like is the indie wrestling stuff coming through, you know, and you're not so like such yeah. a big fan. But then on the other side of it, they do have like, you know, the wrestling and now with the ladder match that's coming up, it's going to be a fucking hoss fest. So that's looking interesting. Whereas WWE, it just does feel like they don't have any long-term storytelling. Like Hangman Adam Page is someone I did not give a fuck about when this company started. Mm. And now he's like one of my favorite wrestlers. 
Whereas in WWE, I love Kevin Owens. I really liked Seth uh, Rollins. Yeah. I enjoy the Miz on the mic at one stage, not so much anymore. <laughs> like it's, you know, there's been people who like <laughs> I've really enjoyed Big E even. Like, and then you see, mm. like, they just don't keep them credible. But then, you know, I also do wonder whether sometimes I'll, like, look, I completely agree with you. I really do. Just in terms of, like, WWE doesn't necessarily know what to do with their talent. That we can agree on. But I also think there is an unrealistic expectation that we do have of these promotions where it's like, oh my goodness, this person is not being utilized. Well, it's like, come on, man. Like, look back at, like, all the favorite, you know, our favorite wrestlers growing up. Like, they weren't always the top guy. And if you were, like, Stone Cold or The Rock, you'd kind of have, you'd alternate, right? Like, Mick Foley, I adore Mick Foley, but, like, he wasn't always the guy. But he was still credible, you know what I mean? Like, he was still there but it's like not everybody but is they, going they to have the him opportunity up to be credible to be, they did but i mean he came there credible to be fair he came there credible and he like so he did have his hardcore you know like he he had that hardcore background but i do feel like he had cultivated like a great promo right like that king dewey stuff brought out a side of mick foley that i feel yeah, oh, king dewey was, was like, fucking dewey. psychotic listen listen and you see that's i think that's that contingent of wrestling fans you know that's something that i i can understand why certain i have thoughts on that but like you know what i mean like i feel like he came to wwe more or less made and he hustled his way into being booked really credibly. However, he wasn't always on top. Like, for example, Big E had a great run. And now people are like, he's being underutilized. Yeah. It's like, well, no. Like, you know, the belt has to be exchanged. The belt has to go in someone else's hands. And I do agree that, like, there is an over-reliance on old-timers. Like, Brock Lesnar. Like, fuck. I really... I swear to God, if I see Goldberg ever again, if I see Goldberg in a, t- if I see <laughs> Goldberg ever again on the main roster, I, I like, I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to jail. I really am. Like, enough. Enough. We've had it. Okay? Enough. But, like, WWE does rely a lot on, like, past glory. And it's like, how long can you sustain that for? You've got to develop new stars. And now they have this kid... Austin Theory and dude like he's just he's being utilized in the most clownish way like he's taking selfies with everybody at the elimination chamber like it's so corny it's so corny like it's like (laughs) what the fuck man why can't you just book this guy credibly like what selfies really like what is it 2013 like what's going on here like they literally had that with what was his name again Oh, Tyler Breeze used to do that. Dude, it's like, what's going on here? But then again, you know, to WWE's credit, they do have Roman Reigns. They do have an incredible women's roster. I am bitterly disappointed at the fact that Ronda Rousey's back. I don't necessarily think that was necessary. I felt like everything yeah. was going smoothly and I know Bailey's going to return and things are going to be hot again. But like, you know... They have Roman Reigns. They have Paul Heyman. I mean, Paul Heyman, in my view, is professional wrestling. Like, he 
brings that element oh, to WWE. He's the reason why I tune in, in addition to Roman Reigns and some of the other people I like. But like, it is frustrating. But I also think we need to understand that not everybody's going to be the guy. And it's fine. Like, it's fine. You know, The Undertaker wasn't always the guy. He was one of the top guys, but he wasn't booked like Stone Cold all the time. And that's okay. Yeah, but it was also like storylines actually mattered, like in a lot of ways. Like they used to just create more captivating stories that you actually gave a fuck about. Whereas like these days, it's so overwritten to a point where it is. it doesn't like, you know, it used to just be a very simple case of like, you know, custody of, you know, Rey Mysterio's kid. I, I mean, I'm kidding. <laughs> Classic. Like there, there was some crazy shit. There was some crazy shit. But like, you know, Jeff Hardy versus CM Punk, you know, the drug-free lifestyle versus mm. the risk taker, you know, like shit like that is just classic fucking storytelling. Like that was like that's the thing. When WWE just sticks to the fucking basics, it can do it well because they've got really good guys and amazing fucking production value. But they mm. just don't fucking commit to stories and they don't necessarily have stories that make sense or they mm. do kind of make sense, but it's like just not appealing to the modern audience. But I'm with you about Paul Heyman. Like that dude's always been like someone who, yeah, like I've rated very highly. Uh, we have also spoken about wrestling, I think for about half an hour now. <laughs> so I think <laughs> we need to probably bring this to an end. <laughs> Oops. Okay. Yeah. But I mean, just if I can just end on one thing, I think the problem is that WWE is trying to chase the casual fan and they need to accept the fact that they are no longer casual fans when it comes to wrestling. Like the people who take an interest in this, take an interest in this. Like they're losers like you and I, who for some reason watch this shit. Like, (laughs) you know why we watch it. We're okay with it, but they need to just accept the fact that it's just smart fans, smarks and marks. Yeah, pretty much. But yeah. Cool. So that <laughs> brings us to the to the it's all good. But I want to thank you so much for your time. Uh we'll probably chat again on a podcast sometime because A, I want to know more just about your history in New York. Actually, I'm just gonna ask you, uh, at New York University, oh, yeah. did you run into James Franco at all? Mm-hmm. Thank God no. Um and even if I did, I probably would have zapped him <laughs> because I've always thought he was a prick. I did run into kind of creepy professors. That was a norm, I, ha- I have to say. There's just a ton of them, you know what I mean? Like, that was a wild adventure. But, um, yeah, it was a great time of my life, I have to tell you. It was an excellent time. I was actually going to ask you, because I know you've written for Noisy. Do you know Alex Robert Ross by any chance? I don't think so. Where? What? Wait, was he in the English Noisy or the American Noisy? He was at the American Noisy, but he's English. Okay, I don't think so. Like, Kim was, uh, Kim, yeah, Kim was my editor. She was great, though. Okay, cool. But, yeah, great time. Great fucking time. I, gosh, ugh, media, so depressing. Like, all the retrenchments. It's not just, like, in South Africa, just globally, man. People are really losing their jobs. And had I not lost my job, I would have stayed there for a long fucking time because you know it's not perfect it's not like you know it's not there's issues everywhere but I guess 
it's nice to be in a space where people understand what you do or have an understanding of what you do. And it's also nice to, I suppose, like be exposed to opportunities and stuff and to feel like, you know, immersed in the arts in a way that you do feel here for sure. But I think there's a lot of corporate interference, a lot of, I don't know, it can get weird, but yeah. Yeah, South Africa, the money stuff is very awkward. Like we can talk for two seconds about it just because, yeah, like I do think the New York stuff is interesting, especially as you say, like, well, what actually, well, with, so I know with media and stuff, like everyone, like I know for myself, like the work had dried the fuck up. And also Mm. all the people who I wasn't competing with, I now am competing with because all the people who are writing for prints when I literally have been, you know, in digital for like a decade, like are now Mm. competing in the same space and everything is closing down. So websites and newspapers and magazines have all closed down at the same time. So is that why it's affected Mm. your writing career as well? Yeah, you know, I think what happened was there was a lot of um, bullshitting on the part of the social media titans who would introduce new things or say, you know, if you pivot to video, your publication is likely to succeed. And so that's what happened. You know, um, when I was in New York, a lot of people, particularly people on editorial, lost their jobs because publications were saying, you know what, we've been told that there's money to be made on Facebook video. We now know that to be a lie. We know that things were manipulated on Facebook's part. So I think, you know, print has been in decline for some time. And I think media has struggled to find a profitable way of producing written work while staying alive. That has quite literally just been the nature of the beast. And I don't think people like Ariana Huffington have made it easy because they normalized this idea that you could hire a bunch of people to write stuff for you for nothing. You know what I mean? Like, I look back on the blogging era and I know that so many of us were quite literally like throwing ourselves at the internet and seeing what stuck and experimenting. And there was so much romance in that. But I think a lot of the exploitative practices we see now were kind of, you know, kind of took off during that time where people realized, oh shit, like we can actually get people to write things for us for free. But then people kind of were like, well, I can't yeah. be doing this for free. I can't be doing this for yeah. such so little money. And that's when we kind of ran into problems. So I feel like, you know, I don't know where the digital is ever going to find a profitable model. You know what I mean? People are losing their jobs left, right, and center. It used to be, as you said, just a print thing where people in print journalism were losing their jobs. Now it's just a it's just a thing in digital. I mean, ENCA people have been retrenched. It's it's so demoralizing. And I wouldn't know what to tell somebody who perhaps, you know, is wanting to be a writer, I wouldn't know what to say to them. Or at least I do know what to say. Have a nine-to-five job if you don't necessarily have the kind of moxie required to be a freelancer and then do some freelance work. You know, but being a freelancer full-time is no fucking joke. 
I've told people who were working at like digital publications and had nice little fucking packages there, cute little benefits who are like, I want to be a freelancer. I want to travel the world. I want to leave my job. I'm like, <laughs> you want to leave a job where you get paid to write and also get benefits. Are you sick in the head? Like, no, don't do that. <laughs> you know, it is so difficult. And I'm sure you can attest to it because you don't just do freelancing in terms of writing. Like you do freelancing in a lot of areas. It is so fucking hard and chasing yeah. those checks. Like it's demoralizing as fuck. And it makes you wonder why you're doing this because the audience doesn't seem to be there. And even if you do want to write pieces, this is something I didn't necessarily mention in our, in our chat, but like I'm finding that editors get suspicious because I don't necessarily have a high social media follower count. Like they're kind of like, wait a second, you're a writer, but you don't have that many followers or you don't necessarily like use certain things to your advantage. And I'm like, like, fuck, man, like, why can't I just be? Then I also have to just accept the fact that this is part and parcel of what it means to be a cultural worker today. Like, you have to be your own A&R. You have to be your own marketing person. You have to do all of this shit for yourself. Otherwise, you know, you lose out. So, yeah, I mean, not to be all doom and gloom, but, you know, <laughs> it's so fucking shit. Well, yeah. To me... I don't know. To me, I also just think that you have to be okay with losing out sometimes. You actually have to, like, depending, mm. like, on what you want in life. Like, it's, maybe that's okay. Maybe you don't need to have, because it's also, like, I just, I don't necessarily believe that that stuff is true anymore. Like, you know, like, the, the mm. social media stuff and the online stuff. Like, a part of me does feel like going back to real world shit is probably or focusing on stuff tangible fucking things is the way to actually have a career these days more than creating something for a website that's going to go under in three years you know no i totally agree with you and i have to say like just to like what you mentioned before what i really like about your podcast is the fact that um you seem and i don't know if this is i i feel like it's intentional but you kind of I really enjoy this idea that you can part ways with certain dreams you had, like the vision you had of yourself might not be the person you are today. Yeah. And that's fine. And I feel like the sort of message on this is like a PSA or anything, but like, it's sort of like, you know, you can kind of fuck up and fail and it doesn't need to be catastrophic. It doesn't need to be the end of your life. You can pivot or you can try and find meaning and beauty in the world through other means. So for you, it's kind of returning to more tangible, real things, which I quite like. And I feel myself doing to some extent, like I am gravitating towards writing fiction more, even though like it's still online writing. But like I feel myself wanting to do that because it feels a little more divorced from the kind of like online crap that happens with nonfiction writing and just like taking an interest in other shit like drawing or sewing or you know painting like I really feel that people who have the ability to part ways with certain visions that they had for themselves 
are the ones who end up surviving in the end because they don't take it personally and they realize that it's all about metamorphosis and evolution and like not not being impermanent yeah yeah not being too attached to like this idea of I failed my life is over you know like yeah no you nailed it that is 100% the whole fucking shtick with this thing is that yeah it's not the end of the world and things are gonna change and yeah, it's not about getting it perfect. It's about, you know, getting it almost mm. perfect and learning from that. But yeah, I want to thank you so much for your time. You've given me so much of it. I really appreciate it. This has been such a fun chat and it's been very enlightening Yay. and very cathartic in some ways, especially considering the heaviness of today. So thank you so much. Of course. Thank you for having me. Oh, by the way, like I legitimately thought that Bob Perfect was a stage name. Like I was actually going to say like, wow, like maybe I should do that. Like I legit thought it was a stage name. Is it? Fuck, I knew it. it I knew it. I was like, oh, okay. All right. (laughs) Hmm. Interesting. I like that. I like that. I might just use that. Thank you. You've given me an idea. Yeah, no, like, fucking, that shit changed years ago. And it's also, like, I mean, there's a lot to it. And people who've heard the podcast before have heard the discussions many times. So I'm not going to bore them. But we can chat about it afterwards if you really want to. But, yeah, it's not. It's definitely not my real name. Although it does have, the perfect is my grand's surname. So, like, it was her maiden name and it's an homage to her. So that's, yeah, that's part of it. Oh. <laughs> Oh, that's sweet. But it also it just it also just works <laughs> like as it really you know, works. Listen, a, comedian's a stage name. name. Hello, a stage name. Hello, and it also just go like I, you know, that little that that photo of you, and I was like, you know what? It's giving like silent film star. You know, it's giving like mime from like the nineteen twenties. <laughs> like it goes, hey, it really goes. Like this is some smart shit. I'm telling you. Okay, cool. I need to really lean into it then. So that was Kanye. Yeah, that was such a fun chat. And I know I know, I was a little awkward at the end there, but I'm always awkward when people are like, yo, I really like that vibe of yours. And I don't know, a part of me has been like, maybe I should lead into that old school dapper vibe and just try to be South Africa's John Mulaney. But yeah, I'm sure my girlfriend wouldn't be too happy about that. Oh, fuck me. What a week it has been. It has been long. Very, very long. It was my fucking birthday on Monday. I turned 35. According to Frank Sinatra, that's meant to be a very good year. Guess what? So far... Ah, 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 fucking... Ah. Like... Things kind of started off on a relatively good note, like got some coverage by City Press on Sunday, Uh, woke up on Sunday morning, got a WhatsApp from Semi RF saying that we were in the City Press, which is rad. City Press is a big newspaper and getting some of that kind of coverage when you're a small little podcaster is quite nice, except the headline was five podcasts to listen to when you are tired of listening to Mac G which his fans did not appreciate not one fucking bit so that kind of uh, became the main focus of everyone when it came to that article and fuck me 
the Sunday was pretty chaotic. Like people, people were getting their jabs in. But I think after City Press saw that, you know, there was a lot of criticism about the fact that there were three white-led podcasts out of the five. Even though the article was written by a black non-binary person, um, that was a large portion of the criticism was that Mac G's a black guy and this is why Monopoly Capital trying to take down a black man. And then on Monday, they posted my picture with the article. So that, that only wrapped up even more. I found myself in the middle of the race and culture war. And not for me. Not a place I want to be, to be completely honest with you. Although I did I did reply to some of the tweets that I saw. But I did see a lot of just crazy fucking shit, man. Like people like guys, Mac G comes from radio. He's part of the old boys club with Gareth Cliff and John Savage and all those fucking people who have money already. They have contacts already. They are the establishment. Yes, they're busy, you know, marketing themselves as empty establishments and the alternative to radio and this and that. But the only reason why they have the money and the platforms and the contacts that they do is because they came from radio. They are an old boys club. And here you are busy defending them against fucking podcasters who are doing this shit in their fucking bedrooms. I'm broke, motherfucker. Brokerty broke. Brokest I've been in so fucking long. And yeah, I have to read people talking about how I'm bribing journalists and how we're making more money than fucking Mac G and we're trying to take him down. And it's like, bro, like this podcast makes like a grand and a bit a month. That's it. That's it. Like, I've been doing this thing for nearly four fucking years for a grand and a bit a month. And also, fuck Cameron Kendall in particular. Yeah, I'll fucking name you. This fucking puss comes and quote tweets, white people must stop forcing themselves on us. It's disgusting. Bro, I didn't even fucking know the article was being written. Yet here you come with your fucking bigoted nonsense, even though you've got a rainbow flag in your fucking profile, but here you are standing up for fucking Mac G. Why? Because you saw my fucking handsome white face on a fucking article and you got jealous that you weren't getting the attention that you so clearly fucking desire. Well, here it is, you fucking bigoted puss. So yeah, that's, that's how my week started. And I know many people are judged on the color of their skin and face way, way, way worse than I did. And so it is, yeah, it's a sobering reminder that we still got a long way to go. And listen, I understand fucking the anti-white, you know, sentiments out there and that. But I've heard judging people based on their skin color is wrong. Like, that's... That's just a thing that I personally believe. Don't know about you. Don't know about you. <sighs> I don't know. That was probably unnecessary, but it has been weighing on my mind a lot this week, as well as Ricky Rick passing away. Um, yeah, the Ricky thing also comes at a time where I think a lot of us have been feeling very low and yeah i won't lie to you and say that that shit hasn't been in my mind a lot over the last few years it's been in my mind a lot in my entire life it's something that yeah a lot of us struggle with and it's something that 
as I get older, you know, lose more people to. And it's just something you can never take back. And it's something that has such a long-lasting impact. But I get it, man. I, I really... I really do. I mean, I've been there. I've. I'm not gonna get into all of that, but you know, it's even fucking Shakespeare wrote about this shit. You know, like whether to snowball in the mind, to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortunes, or to take up arms against the sea of troubles, and all of that. You know, for me personally, that lots of people have struggled with it is something that at least gives me some comfort. Um, you know, I read like Emil Koran or Alba Camus, and they both have very interesting uh, takes on shuffling yourself off of this mortal coil. So, I don't know, for me, that stuff has been helpful. Like, reading depressive fucks and their takes on the world and the mind and how to survive it all. And yeah, but. Man, I don't fucking know what to say. I just... It's fucking tragic, man. Like, Ricky truly was one of the nicest guys. Like, every interaction I've ever had with him was just cordial and charming. And he really made you feel like he gave a fuck. Like, you know, he wasn't dismissive at all. And, like, there's so many young people who have been sharing the same sentiments. So many young artists, people in the media, people... So many... Like, he touched so many fucking lives through his kindness, through his willingness to give everyone the time of fucking day. And, yeah, I hope we all do just try and fucking be a little bit more... <laughs> you know, like Ricky each day in those ways, because fuck, like what an amazing example, what an amazing, just beautiful fucking human being, man, and I really, yeah, I don't know what to say, man, I'm just gonna end this here, I'm not gonna do shout outs and stuff today, sorry if you were looking forward to that, but yeah, I will catch you on the flip side, later.